May it please the listeners. My name is Rich Schoenstein, and this is Law Brief. And here we go again. We're going to talk about restrictive covenants as we have done in the past. And I have my friend and partner, David Kleinman, on with me. How are you doing, David? Good morning, Rich. How are you? I'm well. David, the Federal Trade Commission says they're going to ban non-competes. They're going to ban them all. First question, can they do that? First answer, no, they can't. It's interesting. In July of last year, actually, I guess it's 21 now, uh, Biden issued an executive order directing the FTC to curtail the unfair use of non-compete clauses. And we thought they were going to go after the unfair use of non-compete clauses, that being what the president directed them to do. Unfortunately, they've gone after all non-compete clauses. And so they found their way into a space that needs some help, perhaps. And they just have developed this entirely unworkable, illegal attempt at fixing it. And it's, it's really unfortunate because it's a, it's a space that cries out for a small amount of thoughtful regulation. And instead, they've brought a large amount of ham-handed illegal regulation. Right. So they need a fly swatter and they've brought a cannon to the job, in essence. I mean, they need a fly swatter, and so they tried to drop a building on the fly, right? I mean, <laughs> it's really, really silly. If you parse this thing out, it's just, it's some intern's really great idea. And for some reason, nobody put a stop to it. All right, let's back up a second. Let's define terms just for anybody listening to this podcast, maybe who doesn't know what we are talking about. So we're talking about non-compete clauses, which are restrictions that show up in employment contracts that purport to bar employees from working with competitors after they leave the employment of that particular employer. Do you accept my definition or would you like to tinker with it? I want to tinker. So it's also in sale agreements, which is really important once we start talking about this proposed rule. And People use the phrase non-compete to mean also other restrictive covenants, such as non-solicit of employees, non-solicit of clients. Meaning clauses that don't bar you from going to work for a competitor, but say, for example, for the next two years, you can't solicit any of your current customers, you can't solicit any of your fellow employees to leave with you or join you at your new employer. And when we say non-compete, we do not mean those other types of clauses, thankfully. We're really just talking about pure non-competes that say you can't go work for your competitor. Okay. And the FTC rule as written and proposed and disseminated would ban those employee non-compete clauses completely. It would ban not just employee non-compete clauses. It bans it for independent contractors. And not just for people with employment relationship, but also those who have sold businesses. And beyond banning it going forward, which is, I think, what everybody expected, the law has a retroactive impact in which it purports to void existing employment agreements that have non-compete provisions in them and existing sale provisions that have non-competes unless you sold more than a 25% interest in a business. And just, I want to talk about for a second, exactly how preposterously broad that is. So a state like California, 
which bans non-competes in employee agreements and has been at the forefront of banning non-competes for employees, has a rule that permits restrictive covenants when you are selling a business. So even the most liberal pro-employee state, which has banned non-competes since the 1850s, doesn't have a rule saying you can't have them in sale agreements because it's silly. The rule they've chosen as it relates to sale agreements is that you need to have a 25% interest in a building, in a business, excuse me. Otherwise, the non-compete is void. So let's say I'm Rich Schoenstein and I own a billion-dollar business and I sell 20 in, in, in which In which case, I'm out of here. In which case, it ends right now, blank air. And he sells a 24% interest in a business. He actually owns effectively 100% of it because the other 76% is held in trust because he's super fancy, right? When Rick Schoenstein sells his $1 billion business, have him tied to a non-compete. But if David Kleinman owns a deli, sells it for $100,000, and I own 26% of it, and I'm getting $26,000 from it, I can have a non-compete. And so there's no rationality as to where this 25% rule comes from, and it creates obvious, absurd results. So too does the retroactive nature of this. I un- Hold on, before we go to retroactive. So, so if I understand what you're saying, you, the proposed rule bans non-compete clauses that arise in connection with the sale of a business unless they're being sold by someone who owned more than 25% of the business? Correct. So it doesn't matter if you had a preferred interest and got 100% of the compensation. Just You just had to have 25% of the ownership. So if there's a business, and let's just play this out. If there's a business now and it sells, let's say, pies, and right. it's owned by five people who own 20% each, they sell it for a billion dollars, and the buyer wants to restrict them from opening another pie shop for two years, they can't do that under this FTC rule. Correct. And even worse, make that past tense. I just bought a business. There was no law prohibiting the use of non-competes. Quite the opposite. 48 states find that they're legal. And even very progressive states who have recently passed laws restricting the use of non-competes have indeed noted that they are fair and lawful by passing those laws, right? So it's a landscape where non-competes are are lawful. If I've just sold a business and it's critical that a few key people don't have non-competes and those people have gotten millions and millions of dollars, this voids the non-compete in those agreements. Okay. So what it means effectively is that the prices for the sales of those businesses are going to drop substantially because it's not as valuable to buy a pie operation if the people selling it can open a competitor a week later. That's layer one of the onion, right? What happens in reality is the company that gets sold, right? They lose in competition to the sellers who then go and create a new business. All of the people that the FTC purports to care about and wants their wages raised, right? The rank and file workers of the business that was sold, when that company loses revenue, some of those people get fired. Those people don't end up earning more money, they earn less. And that's what the FTC is missing in all this, is when you change the pieces on the board immediately in a drastic way on a nationwide basis, 
you get winners and losers. And the winners are not the wage earning employees because lots of overhead needs to be cut when businesses fail. And those people don't automatically, once they're out of work, get higher paying jobs. That's not reality. Okay. And it's interesting because for years and years and years, there's been different treatment for restrictive covenants in the context of a sale of a business. And the courts generally sustain those on a much higher level than they do non-competes and employment contracts. And this law doesn't effectively make the distinction that the courts have been making for many years. Yeah. And it's just ham-handed. There should be a dollar amount in there. You either get more than X dollars or you own more of Y interest. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're favoring super rich people when you're trying to protect non-rich people. And that doesn't seem to be the FTC's mandate. It's really a very poorly thought out law. Okay, so let's move, David, because we've talked a little bit about how it affects sales of businesses. So let's now talk about employment, which is the main focus of the law. And you understand the argument. I'm going to be devil's advocate a little bit with you here. You understand the argument that people have been overusing these non-compete clauses And they use them to preclude their employees from leaving instead of just paying the employees well enough that they don't want to leave. And that's what they should do. Just pay them well, treat them well, make them part of the business, make them a good place to work so they don't ever want to leave. Instead, they slip these terms into their contracts day one and use the courts to enforce them. And that seems unfair to people. I think it's worse than that. I think there's also a class of employer that has onerous training repayment clauses that puts non-competes into sandwich worker agreements. There's a real abuse of pure non-competes by typically large companies against low hourly wage earning workers. And the FTC on January 4th went after three of these people. And that's a good thing for the FTC to be doing. I do agree with you that non-competes are being abused. And Lots of states have figured out a way to deal with it. So Colorado this summer passed a law saying that unless you earn more than the highly compensated threshold, a little, little more than $100,000 a year, can't have a non-compete. And unless you earn more than a number in the $50,000 range, you can't have a client-based restriction. That was a thoughtful exercise of a legislature looking at a problem and trying to figure out how to address it. But why limit it? Why, you know, 50000 a 100000 that's not that much money in today's world. Why limit it to those employees? Why shouldn't employees who make a little more also be protected from these restraints? Well, let's agree that the line could be different, but there are professionals who get paid a ton of money, have access to a lot of clients because their companies pay them to find the clients or the companies hand them the clients. And if they leave, they can really harm a business. There are professionals out there that have access to trade secrets that if they just simply walk across the street and go to a competitor, are going to give that competitor the benefit of those trade secrets. And trade secrets and client relationships are on a multi-state basis, typically the bases, the rationale for enforcing restrictive covenants. And all sorts of courts, liberal courts, conservative courts, state courts, federal courts have found that there's a reason for this, to not destroy the value of businesses by letting people sort of take the most valuable portions of the business that they shouldn't be taking. And if the point is, 
Well, who cares? You're just benefiting business owners and the wealthy. The answer is when businesses fail, the workers suffer. It's not typically the star salesman who moves and takes the business that suffers. It's the eight people that were servicing that account and the business leaves and those people don't have a job anymore. And so there's a real reason not to quickly and on a nationwide basis pick winners and losers like this because you're going to create a ton of people getting fired once business moves on this scale. This is a major, major issue. This would result in thousands and thousands of people saying, oh, my covenants are void. I'm going across the street and good for those people who would get more money. And then the rank and file who are the secretaries, the support staff, all of the overhead that really assisted that business being serviced, those people are going to get fired. And they're not necessarily getting better paying jobs across the street. That new business may already be fully staffed. They may be using technology. And if the rule goes into effect, which it shouldn't and probably won't, it will result in the mass termination of millions of Americans. And that's the problem here. You said a lot there. I can see you're on the fence about this rule. But let me back up. You talked about trade secrets. Aren't there other laws that protect trade secrets that companies can avail themselves of if somebody tries to leave with the secret sauce? Yes, there are state laws. There is a Uniform Trade Secret Act, which is in effect in 48 states, and there's a Federal Defend Trade Secret Act. So hypothetically, if somebody takes physical trade secrets, there's a lot of laws that allow you to stop those physical trade secrets that exist on devices, on paper being used. It becomes nearly impossible when somebody leaves with information in their brain. So if I'm leading the Northeast consulting division of a giant consulting company, and I know the strategy, the companies we're going after, the sectors we're going after, my marketing and business plan for the next 18 months, and I go to a competitor, I'm going to take that information about how my old company was doing it, and I'm going to either copy it or work around it. And so there are instances where People have trade secrets, real trade secrets, and they need to be protected. Right. And I have added to this argument, you know, the thing about a restrictive covenant is it's much easier to enforce than it is to bring a theft of trade secret action, right? Because it's a bright line. A restrictive covenant is you can't go to work at this other company and you either do or you don't. Theft of trade secret requires a much higher level proof. Yeah. We're going to start doing cake analogies here, right? Because... The only way to describe this law is- I was on pie. Why are you moving to cake? I'm moving to cake because this is a, real, a lot of like half-baked ideas here. So, <laughs> and I was trying to think if like half-baked was really fair because half-baked sort of means that you got all the ingredients into the right vessel and put it in an oven with heat. And I just, I feel like this law is still at the grocery store and there's not an oven in the kitchen. You know, I mean, it's just so non-integrated. So the the discussion of confidentiality provisions that we just had there's also a extension on the prohibition of non-competes in this new rule to cover de facto non-compete. What's a de facto non-compete? It's something that they think acts like a non-compete. And they give two examples. One is a non-disclosure agreement that's written so broadly that it effectively precludes a worker from working in the same field after the conclusion of that worker's employment. I actually think that would be a decent thing to put in a well-written rule. I've seen agreements where People have taken garden variety trade secret provisions and said, and because you have trade secrets, you can't work for a competitor. I think it's entirely inappropriate to take a doctrine like inevitable disclosure and 
use it so broadly. But on the other hand, what this would mean is that every confidentiality provision would be subject to attack, right? Because everybody would claim that this is too broad, it precludes a worker from working in the same field. And so you, you effectively would have a ton of litigation about whether confidentiality provisions met some unknown threshold of whether or not it gets close to a non-compete restriction. You also have in this proposed rule forbidding de facto non-competes, reimbursement of training cost prohibitions, which I think is great. I mean, there are companies that say, if you leave, you have to pay us X dollars for training. That's not a New York state concept, obviously, but I think those should go away as well. These are examples of good ingredients in the law that perhaps should be mixed with other ingredients, and not in this way. What I don't see in de facto non-compete, and I'm guessing there would have to be a regulation, is what are we doing with client-based restrictions that say you can't solicit, accept, or service any client in the state of New York? Is that a de facto non-compete or is that a client-based restriction? Where is that going to fall? If you are recruiting people because you're in a staffing company, executive search space, what if it says you can't poach employees and you are working for a company so big you end up losing a job? Is that a de facto non-compete in a limited circumstance? And then, Rich, the higher level clauses that better lawyers use in these agreements, like garden leave provisions, notice of resignation provisions doesn't appear to bar them, but they... Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Garden leave provisions generally are provisions where you can keep paying an employee for a certain amount of time and they can't take a new job during that period of time. And as you say, also, some companies are using lengthy notice provisions, like you can quit anytime you want, but you have to give us six months of notice. And then after the six months, we can put on another six months of garden leave. And you're saying this rule is unclear as to what it would do with those kind of provisions? Those as well as what happens if you have employment for a term? What if my agreement says I'm employing you for a year? Under New York law, your duty of loyalty would exist during that entire period of time. And hypothetically, you could stop somebody from going and working for a competitor, even though it's not a non-compete. They don't deal with that. And it's really important to not just throw out two examples and talk about a de facto non-compete. Because if this is really going to be a rule, which it isn't, and it's really going to be enforced in 240 plus days, which it won't, people would need to know what they'd be shooting for. And can I no longer have employment for a term? Is the FTC deeming employment for a term a de facto non-compete because people can't just leave before the term is up? I mean, it's just, like I said, not well thought out. These are pretty obvious corners that you need to look around and think about. And I think there's a reason this rule was put out on January 6th, a day of national significance. And on a Friday, I think somebody saw this and said, this is so bad. Let's make sure this has as small a PR impact as possible. Because anybody who looks at this thing who's in the space is going to tear it to shreds. Well, fair enough, David. But, you know, there is a groundswell of opposition to non-competes. The press certainly has attacked non-competes and used some of the egregious examples we've mentioned to attack non-competes. Sure. Politicians who are being very loud about their support for this rule. So there is some momentum, but you don't see it happening? I don't see it happening. I mean, I personally would be in favor of smart rulemaking in the space or legislation in the space. 
like I said, Colorado just passed something that is very pro employee. There's carve outs for sales. You know, there's income levels. And we could talk about the appropriate income levels. Maybe middle class isn't $100,000 a year. Maybe if you're not making $200,000 a year, you shouldn't have a non-compete. You know, Massachusetts, which kicked around a law for years, passed a law requiring some amount of severance. There are states that are very pro-worker, that are doing very thoughtful things in the space. This is not one of them. That's the problem. I always think the extremes on this issue are easy. Somebody who makes sandwiches for a living should not have a non-compete. They should be able to make sandwiches wherever they want. On the other hand, if I pay a guy $5 million a year to be CEO of my company, it is reasonable for me to put a clause in there that says he can't go work at my direct competitor for the next year because I'm making a substantial investment in him. I'm giving him all of the knowledge and know-how and the deepest, darkest secrets of my company, and I don't want him competing with me soon. That seems eminently reasonable. It is the spaces in between those extremes that need navigation. You can narrow that significantly. So, I mean, you and I have spoken about this. There is an informal rule in New York that you can't get a non-compete in force against somebody unless they're making at least $100,000 a year. I say unless they're making at least as much as the judge. Well, right. <laughs> Who is not making that much more than $100,000 a year. But that's the line I always use. I use the work on a year-by-year basis until they froze judges' salaries for a long period of time. And I'm sure with inflation, that number is probably 250, but you just can't, you can't do it, right? So maybe that number should go up. I don't think you need to go to 5 million before you understand the rationale for non-compete, but let's talk about that $5 million CEO for a second. What this rule leaves out is any concept of what happens with that person's vested or unvested ownership in a business. It leaves out what happens when that person leaves and there's a forfeiture for competition provision, right? Or some other provision which says, if you leave our employ and you're not retiring, you don't get X. And there's a lot of nuance here that's simply missing from this rule. That is a whole other area that could be de facto non-competes where compensation includes for example, shares in the company that vest over some period of years and the vesting ends upon leaving and or leaving for a competitor, it's an open question as to whether that is a non-compete. I've seen a lot of corporate documents which say, if you go and work for a competitor, you lose your vested right in X. And this rule doesn't appear to cover it, although I'm sure some underlying regulations might. There's just a, a lot missing here, which is sort of part of the problem here. If you wanted to do something broad and impactful covering 60% of the workforce, you make a rule that says unless somebody's making more than $125,000, $150,000 a year, or they're getting paid severance equal to 100% of their last year's compensation, including bonuses, you can't have a non-compete. And you put that in effect prospectively. And then everybody says, oh, crap. And for every new hire, they have to do it. And for old hires, maybe they don't. But as the workforce turns over, it phases in and it's fair for everyone. And the PR push you get from it would be as impactful as this PR push. What you can't do is say we're voiding everybody's existing agreements, including in sale agreements. I mean, that's sort of bonkers if you think about it. Yeah, the immediate voiding of hundreds of thousands of commercial contracts across the United States 
I don't know the precedent for that. You know, people attack me sometimes and say I'm only defending non-competes because it's part of my legal practice and I make a living litigating about non-competes. Let me assure everybody, we will be litigating about employee mobility issues one way or another for the rest of our careers, no matter what the rules are. And if this became the law, I think it would be fodder for even more litigation. I don't think this is going to have a negative impact on people who actually are in the space and live here. I mean, because they're not curtailing the use of client-based restrictive covenants, and that's 99.5% of what people in the space actually deal with. It's not the non-competes that people really deal with, it's the client-based restrictions. So I don't see this as having a material negative impact on the work I do or the volume of it nor you do, Rich, nor anybody in the space. It's just this isn't the right way to do this, right? Nope. We know it's not the right way. You know, the genesis of this is a white paper the Obama White House did that was published, I believe, 2016. And after that, a bunch of states picked it up and enacted wage thresholds for the use of certain restrictive covenants. Sometimes there were severance requirements, like in Massachusetts, sometimes not. Sometimes there were income thresholds. Multiple states have altered those income thresholds because I think they looked at it and said, wait, this isn't just right. That's the thoughtful way to do it. Nobody's going and saying, look at those states, look how great it's going, we're copying that. That's what the FTC should have done. None of those states made it retroactive. You can't make it retroactive. That's the problem. All right, David, you and I could talk about this for hours and hours, but... uh, You don't think your audience wants to listen to this for hours and hours? They have a lot of other podcasts to get to. So we're going to have to wrap it up. Now, you've been on with me before, you know, I give you a a minute to uh, tell us a little bit about what you do for a living. You are the most knowledgeable lawyer about restrictive covenants and related issues that I have ever met in all of my years of practicing. But wait, there's more. What else do you do? So I generally uh, represent businesses and professionals in transition as they deal with their employment and restrictive covenant issues. So there's also a hiring and firing portion of my practice. There's an advising professionals in transition portion of my practice. If somebody's being exited as a C-level person and they're getting severance and they want to structure it. So it's the usual and ordinary employment issues that come up from a garden variety to a sophisticated level. And then there's also the covenant piece. And so when the FTC publishes a quirky rule that nobody's thought about, everybody scrambles, it's something typically that I've been mulling about for a while. And I love it. And we do a lot of it here. And I think we do it to uh, everybody's satisfaction. All right. I allow you a closing argument if you want to make a brief one. You had a lot to say on this topic. But what's the takeaway on the FTC's new rule, proposed rule banning non-competes? So I am no constitutional lawyer, but the people I know that are tell me that there's a major questions doctrine. The idea of this rule is to impact all wage earning employees on a nationwide basis. And the unintended consequence is to impact a large number of transactions retroactively, it's unlikely that this rule will survive that doctrine. And the Supreme Court will probably say this has to be by legislative action. Same too about the retroactive portion. I'm not sure the FTC has a grant of authority to make retroactive rules of this type. And so everybody expects that at some point in numerous states, this law will be enjoined. It would then, I imagine, be consolidated. They'd roll the wheel one 
federal circuit would take up the appeal, it would take a while, and then it would end up at the Supreme Court. And so if in 2024, this thing is enforced, I would be surprised. I don't think anybody thinks there's a chance in hell that it goes into effect this year. So everybody should take a deep breath, keep their powder dry. They should come with a plan to deal with this that they can execute on if it ever sees the light of day. But I don't see that happening. And my closing argument would be a related note. It's really a plea to some very well-intentioned people who are trying to address this issue. Nuance matters. You can't just hit a yes or no button on restrictive covenants and be done with the issue. There are distinctions that are important. As David says, there are some states that have taken very thoughtful approaches to this issue. Go back to the drawing board. Write something sensible. Don't just write a press release. Yeah, it's, it sounds to me like there's a lot of professors and politicians at a very large table debating this. And nobody's turning to somebody who actually does it for a living and says, what is the practical implication of this? What is the downside? Because I've seen lots of papers about two, you know, 2% increases in compensation. And great, you could have a 2% increase for people who get jobs. But what about all the people that get bounced out of the workforce or have to change it? It just, it's so ham-handed, you know? It's, it's like if you're making policy about how surgeries should be performed, get a surgeon in the room. Ask them if all the patients are going to bleed out for some reason. That's what this is. This is a terribly thought out rule with the best intentions, but get some practitioners in the room to say, is there a better way to do this? What are the implications? How do we fix this? Is it ham-handed or ham-fisted? I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of ham going on. There's a lot of ham. (laughs) All right. Well, it's ham something and it's not David's piece of cake. David, thank you for doing this with me. I will see you since you're just down the hall. I will see you soon. (laughs) Thanks, Rich. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to Law Brief. Now here's something lawyerly, a disclaimer. We are not your lawyers. We do not have an attorney-client relationship, and this podcast does not constitute legal advice. If you need legal advice, you should engage a lawyer of your own choosing. Tartar Krinsky and Drogan is a mid-sized full-service law firm located in New York with offices in New Jersey and Los Angeles. You can see more about us at tartarkrinsky.com. You can contact us at the email address podcast at tartarkrinsky.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at at lawbriefpodcast. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram under the handle at Lawful Riches. I know it's a little bit silly, but at least you don't have to spell Schoenstein. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review us. I'm Rich Schoenstein and we are adjourned.